0: Thank you, my friend. So as I explained to you a little earlier, we're kicking off a new study theme and in our year of studying masters and mystics and metaphysicians. So I want to go back through those three words again, because by the end of the year, we really want to understand what they mean. So we've talked a bit about masters, that masters are people who choose something, are led or called or guided to something. That ends up being their life work, their life study, their life passion. And at this time, as we go through this year together, it's hopeful that you'll ask yourself the question, what is my life passion? What do I care to master? Mastery isn't something that necessarily starts as a child. There are many people who in their later years of life have the time and the inclination to actually work toward mastery. The mastery changes who you are. The pursuit of mastery invites you to look for teachers. It invites you to seek new information, to expand who you are, as opposed to simply settling into day-to-day existence. It invites you to bring forth the very best and most powerful aspects of yourself. And you came here to do that, to bring those parts forward. Mystics are people who have had a direct experience with the divine, generally as a result of whatever it was they were trying to master, generally as a direct result of their life circumstances, which brought them to their great passions. And metaphysicians are people who simply see the natural world in a much bigger way than is normal in our society. They see beyond the normal limitations that we put on ourselves as human beings and look into the meta or what is beyond our visible experience. So most of the people that we're going to study throughout the year are all three of these, masters, mystics, and metaphysicians. And George Washington Carver was indeed all three of these, a man who in a very practical way, was known as a scientist, but was also known as the man who spoke to flowers. He has a very unique life story that brought him into relationship with nature in a profound way. And through that relationship, he developed a clear understanding, a clear ability to speak directly to the the, um, energy he called Mr. creator and to get answers, real, solid answers he could hear and feel and know. So we have a little video. Michael, just uh, nod at me and let me know that's queued up. Then we're gonna go ahead and learn a little bit about him.
1: Born into slavery in Missouri, George Washington Carver was orphaned as an infant and raised by Moses and Susan Carver, the family who had owned his mother. As a frail child, he was not required to help with heavy farm chores, and spent his days exploring nature and the plants in the Carver house. Soon, he became known as the plant doctor. George left the Carver home to pursue an education on his own. After two years, he earned a certificate of merit and would have to move again in order to continue learning. He moved 75 miles away to Fort Scott, Kansas. He worked at menial jobs while trying to save enough money for school. But his life was a lonely one filled with poverty, cruelty, and prejudice. When he witnessed a black man being lynched, he fled. He had been accepted to Highland College in Kansas, but on arrival, he was turned away because of his race. In 1886, he settled on a farm in Ness County, Kansas. While there, he performed agricultural experiments that would later be valuable to him. George was able to save enough money for a semester at Simpson College in Iowa to study art. Out of 300 attending, he was the only black student, and he was welcomed. He was described as having a burning zeal to know everything. His art teacher was so impressed with his ability with plants and encouraged him to major in horticulture. He transferred to Iowa State Agricultural College and graduated in 1894. In 1896, having received a master's, George was offered a position by respected educator Booker T. Washington of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. At Tuskegee, George decided on his purpose in life. He was going to help a former slave population become self-sufficient through farming.
2: Carver had been trained in Iowa in the natural sciences in botany and as a scientist and investigator, Carver was a deeply practical man. He wanted to turn science into products that would benefit the black
1: rural poor. He developed the Jessup Wagon, a movable laboratory on wheels to help educate farmers. He encouraged them to rotate their crops to conserve the nutrients in the soil and to give up soil depleting cotton crops. He persuaded the farmers to plant peanuts instead. In his Tuskegee lab, he developed over 300 uses for the peanut and 100 uses for the sweet potato anything from beverages to medicines to paints. Carver collaborated with Henry Ford in developing alternative fuels with soybeans. He also perfected a process for extracting rubber from the milk of the goldenrod plant.
2: Carver produced a series of scientific uh, inventions that were primarily designed to enhance the economic and agricultural productivity of the Black
1: Belt. They benefited black and white farmers alike. This prolific scientist was also a painter, a crocheter, and a musician, even raising money for the Tuskegee Institute by touring as a pianist. He had once turned down the opportunity to work with Thomas Edison because he believed he would do more good at Tuskegee. After World War I, by the 1920s,
2: Carver had become something of a legend, a folk hero
1: to the Black South. George Washington Carver died on January 5, 1943. He was buried at Tuskegee next to his friend, Booker T. Washington. His tombstone reads, he could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world. George Washington Carver's
2: greatest accomplishment was in being a role model to a generation of young African-American scientists who followed him.
0: So imagine that, just imagine the world in the year 1864. The Civil War began in 1861. And in 1864, was coming to its end. According to his autobiography, George Washington Carver believed that he was was born about two weeks before the war ended. Most of us know that when a war ends, it doesn't mean that we have found peace. It means one power has overwhelmed another power. And there's usually still some pushback going on. When George was born, he was born to a slave woman named Mary. He had, in his older years, the original papers of her sale. And they estimated that she was sold to Moses and Susan Carver when she was 13 years old. So she was a young woman. She had three daughters and two sons, Two of her daughters and one of her sons were buried in a family plot and he was able to go to those to that site. But not long after he was born, he was what he called Ku Kluxed and he and his mother and his sister were taken by raiders across from Missouri into Arkansas, which borders the state on the south end. And Moses Carter offered money and sent a man to go and find them and bring them back. And they found the baby, paid $300 to return the baby, but were not ever able to recover the mother and the sister. His father had been killed before he was ever born, taking an ox cart into town and was lynched. So he was, before he was old enough to even recognize that he was alive, he was an orphan. And at that time, at the end of the war, the family, Moses and Susan, took him in and let him live in the main house. He was very sick when he came back. He came back with whooping cough, and he was very sick, and he continued to be sick through most of his young life. In fact, doctors told Moses and Susan that he wouldn't live to be 21. So he was given a very light chore load. He did mostly light things in the house, helped with washing clothes and doing dishes and things like that, and ended up having a lot of free time. And as soon as he was old enough to walk out of the house on his own, he began to explore the, the woods around the plantation. And all of his young life, he would get up very early in the morning. He said his habitual time was 4 a.m., And he would get up and he would walk out into the woods and there he would talk to God every single day. And he would talk to God and he would ask for the secrets of life. He would ask to understand what was happening in the world around him. And many of his answers came through the plants that were were available in the woods. And he, he over time created a special grove And as he found plant specimens that to him were like pets, they were living beings, he would gently move them from where they were nesting into this small workshop, God's workshop, and take care of all of them and talk to him. And in his biography, he talks about the tears he shed when he would break a leaf or a root as he moved those living beings that he understood to be living beings, communicative, interactive, living beings, he would cry if he hurt them. And he would sit with them and care for them and ask them to tell him their secrets, what they had to explain to him. By the time he was nine years old, Susan had given him... An old spelling book. And he had taught himself everything he could about how to read. But there were no schools that would accept black children in the area that they lived. And he had to go eight miles away to go to a school that took in black students. And eight miles is too far to come and go every day. So he would go there. And he would sleep wherever he could find shelter. And he would do odd jobs for the people around the school so he could have money for food. And he would come back only when he had extended time off. And he followed this pattern until he was able to go a little farther off to high school. It took him seven years to complete high school because he had to work and have a place to live and take care of himself to be able to do that. And then he went off to college. But I want to stop in our story right there. And I want to look back at what we've just heard. And I want to invite you into understanding the influences of his childhood because they're very significant in his being able to move on and accomplish all that he did in his life. I want you to imagine what it might be like to lose your mother at such a young age. I want you to imagine what it might have been like to be stolen. There are certain things in life that a person doesn't want to remember. Certain hurts and pains and traumas in life that a person doesn't want to know about, truly wants to leave in the past. And one of those has to do with having a sense of belonging. A sense of connection somewhere. A sense that you are one with someone or something. And George didn't have that. He lost his mother at a very young age. He never got to know her. He never got to know his father. He never got to know his sister, any of his sisters or his brother. It was believed that his sister and brother were killed, his mother killed. And then there were stories that someone had seen them taken North with soldiers, but he never found them and he never had time with them. And I'm not sure which of those is harder knowing that they're lost or wondering if you have family out there somewhere and simply can't make contact because there were no cell phones. Then there was no internet and we were just barely past the civil war in a time where our country was still very divided. It was not a safe time for this young man. And even though he was treated very well by the family, by the Carver family, it was not his family And he still worked in the household. He was cared for because he was ill. And he was cared for largely because the family had a kind heart. But this was not his family. And it should not be misconstrued that he was raised in the same way as a child with a family might be raised. Remember, he was allowed to leave home before he was 10 years old to live on the street to find places to sleep and shelter himself. How many of you have been in Missouri in the winter? This is not a gentle, Missouri is not an easy place to live today. Then we have air conditioning and heat. He didn't have those things. And he woke up at four o'clock every morning and I can't help but imagine that he was looking for his place in the world that perhaps he was looking for where he connected, what was there for him. That sense of aloneness, that sense of longing for love, for connectedness, for a sense of being cared for, brought him into the arms of the holy through nature. And he had the opportunity every single day to go out and connect, to physically connect, to touch and feel what was around him in nature. And he talks in his autobiography about stones. He had a special relationship with stones as well. He was often told on the plantation to move stones that had fallen off the fireplace or down around the building, down the hill and put them away, get them away from the house so nobody would trip over them. And so he would move them and on the way down the hill, he would make friends with some of them and put them back in his pockets and take them back with him and then be told that they belong down the hill. So it wasn't just plants, but all of nature that he connected with, that he sought out. And that voice of Mr. Creator, who somehow he heard, whether he heard words or whether he heard through his heart, through a sense of being, we don't know. But there is a story that he tells later in life about the fact that at one point, long after college or long going into college, he he went out at four o'clock in the morning and he said, Mr. Creator, what's the purpose of the universe? And the universe responded, little man, the purpose of the universe is way bigger than you will ever understand. And he said, okay, then, Mr. Creator, what is the purpose of man? And he heard the reply back. Little man, that is still bigger, you know, I think in my head, over your pay grade, right? It's, it's still over your head. I can't explain that to you. And he said, Mr. Creator, what is the purpose of the peanut? And from that, he began to get the answers that gave him over 300 products that were developed from that one simple plant. And he accounts his understanding of what the, the peanut and the sweet potato were for to have come through the teachings that he received from the holy. That, that connection is what brought him to envision and invent and bring forth all of the things that he brought forward. So as we go through this month, we're going to talk about the tools he used. We're going to talk about what he accomplished. We're going to talk about his influence in the world. But I want to tell you one last interesting thing. Because we tend to put characters far away from us. These mystics, we tend to put them far in our history. And being born in 1864 still sounds like a long time in the history of our country. As opposed to where we are today in, in this 2018, but last week when I announced here that we would be talking about George Washington Carver this month, uh, one of the members of our community came to me. Um, we have a, a member here, Frank Macon, who is a, a Tuskegee Airman, and he stopped me as he left to tell me about meeting George Washington Carver, and what that was like for him. So at some point I'll see if I can get Frank to tell that story. But it's, it's that close. We're connected. There is a living member who met this man as a living member in our community. This is not so far away as we'd like to make it. And it's really important for us to remember that. Because it's not about the world being so dramatically different. Even though it is. It's about our connectedness. And we're seeing that through all of the the metaphysicians that we've studied, through all of the mystics that we're learning about. This is about what drives us to connect to one another, to the world around us, and to the holy. So next week we'll talk more about George Washington Carver, but I have a couple of his quotes for you right now. George Washington Carver said, If you love it enough... If you love it enough, anything will talk to you. He said, Fear of something is at the root of hate for others, and hate within will eventually destroy the hater. He said, How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday in life, you will have been all of these. And he said this, how do I talk to the flower? Through it, I walk to the infinite. And what is the infinite? It is that silent, small force. It isn't the outer physical contact. No, it isn't that. The infinite is not confirmed in the visible world. It is not in the earthquake, the wind, or the fire. It is that still small voice that calls up the fairies. Yet when you look out upon God's beautiful world, there it is. When you look into the heart of a rose, there you experience it. But you can't explain it. There are certain things, often very little things, like the peanut, the little piece of clay, the little flower that causes you to look within. And then you see the soul of all things.